All right, well, why don't we, uh, why don't we get started, and um, I always have to edit so much out of the beginning of these things, because there's talks about do-rags and haircuts, and it's, it's, it's going. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and get started. Um, so tonight we are uh, discussing Article 4, the fall of man uh, from our confession of faith that we hold to, the 1646 First London Baptist Confession of Faith. And um, let me just read that article in case uh, you did not have a chance to read it before this evening. And uh, the fall of man... And it says, in the beginning, God made all things very good, created man after his own image, filled with all meat perfection of nature and free from all sin. But long he abode not in this honor, Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce first Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion in eating the forbidden fruit transgressed the command of God and fell, whereby death came upon all his posterity, who now are conceived in sin, and by nature the children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subject of death, and other miseries in this world and forever, unless the Lord Jesus Christ set them free. All right, so, um, you know, this is a... a it, 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 tremendously important topic. I mean, every every doctrine, of course, that we will be going through in uh, the the 1646 is important. I mean, every article, every paragraph is important. Um, but I, I've said once before that the 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 you know the two uh, you know I think most important doctrines to really get right um, is the sovereignty of God and total depravity or the fall of man because those are the two lenses i like to say those are the two lenses if you're thinking in terms of like eyeglasses through which we interpret all of scripture i mean how you view god who he is and what he's like and how you view man what man is like and how sin has impacted man will radically impact every way that you interpret scripture um as you read scripture through those two lenses i mean whether god is completely sovereign or god is just trying as best he can to save people i mean those those are radically different views of who god is or whether or not human beings are just sick with sin you know sort of wheezing uh on their deathbed or whether human beings are dead in their sin Right is going to radically change um, how we interpret um, 
all of, all of Scripture. So we're going to just walk through this paragraph, and I'm just going to sort of take it bit by bit. Um, and it begins uh, by saying, In the beginning, God made all things very good, created man after his own image, and filled with all meat perfection of nature and free from all sin. So let me just pause there because I want to just look at the part that says, God made all things very good and created man in his own image. So this is clearly stated in Genesis, right? This isn't anything that is new, uh, that God created all things good. We see that that phrase is repeated multiple times in uh, the first chapter of Genesis. It's in verse 4. Verse 10, verse 19, verse 25, verse 27, that, that God created and he, and, and he saw that all things were good. And then he creates a little more and he saw that all things were good. And then he creates a little more and it says it again, and that all things were good. What is interesting is when you get to verse 31, after he's done created everything, for the first time and the only time it says, and God saw that everything was very good, Right? So everything that God created was um, good, and God made man uh, in his own image. Um, what does that mean, that God made man in his own image? Here's, a, I think, a really simple way of understanding that. Uh, to be made in God's image means that everything that is found in man is found in God on an infinite level, minus sin. Okay, so everything found in man is found in God on an infinite level, minus sin. You could say it the other way, that everything found in God is found in man on a finite level. On a finite level. Yeah? When you're saying that... Uh just makes me, it's making me think, and you can correct me, obviously, but I'm thinking of a scripture where it talks about no one is good, no, not one, but at this point, before the fall, mm. man was intrinsically like God, and yes. he was good. Yes, he was good. He was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly holy and pure and sinless. So yes, when I say that, I'm not talking about post-fall. Um, well, actually, I am, because then I, you know, I add that part, minus sin, Right? So if you take away the sin, then everything found in man is found in God on an infinite level. Uh, or vice versa, everything found in God is found in man on a finite level. Um, man is literally sort of a, a chip off the old block, as, as it were. It, in other words, it means that human beings are spiritual, right? We are spiritual beings. Um, God does not breathe you know, uh, the breath of life into any other living creature other than, than man. Man is a, a spiritual being. We, we have a spirit. Um, we are body and soul. Man is an intellectual being, right? Highly intelligent, far more than the most intelligent animal that is out there on the planet. Um, you know, in terms of our, our ability to rationalize we engage in philosophy, in philosophical thought, um, you know, uh, logic. Um, so we're not just talking about scientific things and mathematical things. Yes, those as well. But 
But we, as human beings, we ponder the meaning of our own existence, right? Um, man is an intellectual being. Man is an emotional. Human beings are emotional beings. God has emotions, right? Um, far more than any animals that are out there. And, uh, and we do know that there are some animals that mate for life. We make a big deal out of that, like eagles mate for life, right? But scientists know this is just sort of an instinctive thing that they do. But for human beings, there is an emotional attachment to other human beings, right? We, we have a variety of emotions that we as human beings deal with that we just don't see in any other um, creature. Um, human beings are relational creatures. Um, it's one of the reasons that, you know, solitary confinement is such cruel punishment, um, whether you're working in the jail or, you know, POW camps, you know. Uh, soldiers were known, particularly in Vietnam, they'd, you know, get captured by the North Vietnamese and they'd get thrown in this little box by themselves for two weeks and it would almost drive them insane um, because human beings by nature are relational creatures. We we have this natural desire to want to be around other human beings. And that's because God is a relational being, right? God has never existed alone, right? I mean, we talk about that there's nothing that God doesn't know. Well, on an experiential level, here's something that God doesn't know. God doesn't know what it's like to be alone because God has never been alone. He has always existed in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right, um, he's a relational creature, and so it was really that's part of when he creates Adam, and he says it's not good for man to be alone. That's a main reason behind it. It's not just that well he's not going to be able to reproduce by himself. That's true, but God understands he's made in my image. He needs companionship. He needs someone that he can relate to and have a relationship with. As human beings, we simply need that. Um, you know, e even, even the most extreme introvert would not want to be on a deserted island by themselves. Um, you start to go crazy just being completely isolated from all human contact. Um, so this is all part of what it means uh, to be made in the image of God. And uh, though God does not have a body, right? I mean, post-incarnation, we know that at least the second person of the Godhead has a body. But prior to the incarnation, you know, God had no body. God is spirit. And though God has no body, in many ways, the human body is also representative of our creator to some degree, right? Um, God is an amazing being who can do amazing things. And so it only makes sense that when he created man in his own image, he created him in a physical form where he can do amazing things, far more amazing than the most advanced mammal on the planet, right? What humans have been able to do just physically. Um, and so... In some ways, our body is representative of God. And so this is, you know, when, when it starts by saying in the beginning, God made all things very good and created man after his own image. 
filled with all meat perfection of nature. Now, meat, that, it's a, that's kind of an archaic word. Um, and uh, meat perfection of nature means everything that was, it was necessary, everything that was needed, uh, he had. He wasn't lacking in, in anything. And free, uh, free from all sin, filled with all meat perfection of nature, and free from all sin. This is made clear, of course, uh, from two places, well, Genesis chapter 2 and 3, right? Um, and when we read Genesis 2 and 3 in light of Romans 5, um, and when I say in light of Romans 5, you know, Paul tells us there in Romans 5 that sin entered into the world through one man, right? Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So, the clear implication there is that sin was not in the world until Adam and Eve sinned, right? And so, uh, they were free from all sin. Um, they, they had a truly free will prior to the fall. When sin comes into the world, they no longer have a a free will, but rather their will is bound by sin. Um, Augustine said that prior to the fall, man uh, had the ability to not sin. And then after the fall, man does not have the ability to not sin, right? Um, When we get saved after our conversion, once again, we have the ability to not sin because of the Holy Spirit. But the amazing thing is that when Christ returns and the new heavens and the new earth are established, then man will not have the ability to sin. Not have the ability to sin. So we go from man has the ability to not sin to man does not have the ability to not sin to once again we have the ability to not sin, but then on the new earth, we will not have the ability to sin. We will not be able to sin on the new earth. That's an amazing concept when you, when you really think about it, right? I can't imagine living in a world without sin. Um, it, I, I can't imagine not having the ability to sin. It's not even a possibility uh, of of committing any sin or sin being in the world. Yeah. When God said you may eat of all the fruit of the garden except for yeah. this particular tree, right. which was the knowledge of good and evil, yeah. when he issued that edict, at that point, wouldn't their free will be bound by that command to some degree? If they weren't free to eat of that tree. At least they weren't supposed to. Right. So wouldn't their, their will at that moment at least be, it's free will, free, but bound. In other words, there's, there's, a, there's a portion of it. It's free to the point of, you can do everything, you, you know, whatever you want to do, but don't do this one thing. So at that point, isn't that, isn't that a minute Type of being bound uh, no, because when we talk about when we talk about free will, we're talking about the uh, the the freedom to please God, the ability to please God, 
and Adam and Eve had the ability to please God. What you're referring to is that they didn't have absolute freedom to do whatever they wanted, right? There was their 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 freedom was limited. They could not do this, right? They they could do whatever they wanted, but this. So they were not given absolute freedom to do whatever they um, whatever they chose to do, um, but they had free will in that they had the ability to please God. Where after the fall, we lose that ability. We don't have the ability to please God. Um, That's the word I was looking yeah. for, limited, because it became, it became yes. limited in that sense. Yes, their, their, their mobility, so to speak, was limited. Um, don't go, don't eat of that tree. Eat any tree, but don't eat of that tree. Um, and so their, their, um, their, uh, their mobility was, was, was limited, right? There was only so far that they were allowed to go. Go wherever you want in the garden. Just don't go to that tree and eat from it. Um, but they had free will. See, so when we talk about the bondage of the will, the freedom of the will, we're talking about does, do our desires uh, have the freedom to please God? And in the unregenerate, and what we're going to look at that as unbelievers, unbelievers do not have the freedom, their desire to please God. They are bound by their own sin nature. Right, only able to sin. That's right, only able, only able to sin. Um, Right. But when I, I guess when I, maybe this is a philosophical question, but um, like if the saint, if the serpent was, the saint wasn't there to tempt them, they would have continued to please God. Yes. Yeah. Say that? Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, but potentially speaking, you know, had Adam and Eve uh, resisted the temptation and not taken of the fruit, they would have lived eternally and they would have populated the earth with children who live eternally. Um, and sin never would have entered into the world. Um, but, uh, but that's not how the story goes, I, right? I just, yeah, I was just trying to wrap my mind But you're right about because they didn't tempt themselves. I mean, right. we read in James that when we sin, we're, 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 we, we sin because we are led away by our own, we're tempted by our own, our own desires. Yeah. Well, in that case, Adam and Eve weren't tempted by their own desires because they had no sinful desires. They were tempted by someone outside of themselves who was tempting them. And so I think theoretically speaking that, yeah, had the devil not been there and had he not tempted them, they would have ignored the tree probably eternally, perpetually. Um, yes. Just, just to be clear, because I mean, we're talking about something that's very important here. Yeah. And so, just in my own understanding, is to understand that no matter how good anything, anything, any person who is unregenerated, no matter what they do, basically, it's sinful. Yes. Yes. So that's the whole point. Right. You're 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 able. To, you're you're sinful. That's it. Period. Yeah. It doesn't matter how good it looks to the world. Right. People do do good things that can be right. Good in a sense, but for themselves, in actuality, 
It's sin no matter what. Yeah. Scripture says, Romans 15, I think it is, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. Exactly. Right? Meaning, anything that we, that we do that does not proceed from a heart of faith in God is sin. Because in some way, it's tainted by sinful motives. Right? So even, even the, the unbeliever who helps the, the little old lady across the street with her groceries, uh, that may seem like a nice thing to do, but in some way, it's sin because, uh, as Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, right? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. We exist for God's glory. We were created for God's glory. Therefore, everything we do should be for His glory. And if it's not done for His glory, then it's a sin. And so the unbeliever doesn't do anything for God's glory. He does things either so that other people will think highly of him, or he does things good so that he will think highly of himself. He'll go home and he'll think, I'm a good person. You know, I helped somebody today and, you know, boost my own self-esteem. Um, or he does good things so that maybe that person can owe him later on down the road. You know, I did something good for you, so now you, you owe me at some point. Um, and so anything that is not, that does not proceed from faith is sin. And so it's not, so it's not possible, yeah, for the, the unbeliever to not sin. Um, it goes on to say, But long he abode not in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce first Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion in eating the forbidden fruit, transgressed the command of God and fell right and um none of this is you know contested among evangelicals which is why i'm not going to spend a lot of time on this right all evangelicals understand that this this is what happened this is how the story unfolds except for those who deny the historicity of the creation account right that's where this is important so for us for our church when we say that this is the confession that we hold to, what we are saying is that we believe Adam was a real historical person and that the fall of Adam and Eve was a real historical event that took place in time. Because there are liberal you know, um, Christians out there, liberal churches, liberal theologians, who will say that the the first you know the first three some will say the first nine i've even read where some have said the first 11 chapters of genesis are not historical right they're not historical um accounts um but rather they are designed to teach sort of a, an idea of how humanity came about but there is no historical adam um Right, they weren't they weren't real people. What word would you use to, to really categorize it? There's a, there's a good word for it. To categorize what? To categorize what? That, that belief that they, some theologians carry. Nonsense. Liberalism. Nonsense. Yeah, I mean, some. Well, well, there's you know, some would hold and argue for what is called um, theistic evolution. And they, they basically want to argue that, look, in light of all of the scientific evidence that we have that is supporting evolution, you know, 
Christians just sound like morons when we deny it and we want to argue that no, God created one man, one woman, and everybody on the planet came from that one man and that one woman. And so there are some who want to argue that, you know, the Genesis account, for example, in Genesis chapter 1, that each day is not a day, right? And so that, that God actually worked through the process of evolution. And so they, they try to make the argument by saying that um, while evolution is true, I still believe that it was God that was moving evolution. So I can still say that I believe in the Bible and I believe in the Genesis account, just not in a literal sense. It wasn't a, a literal six days. It might have been more like six billion years, um, but it was God who was doing it all, right? And so there are some, there are others that I've read who have said that Genesis 1 um, is, is, and to an extent, even Genesis 2 and 3 are really in the form of Hebrew poetry, uh, not designed to be taken as, as literal historical facts or a historical record, but it's more Hebrew poetry. And so like poetry, it's conveying the idea of God bringing all things into existence, but it's not intended for us to take it literally verse by verse, step by step, day by day. Um, and I just think that that is a poor reading of the Genesis account. Doesn't that just basically that doing that, because they do that with other things. Yeah. That's not the only thing. Right. It, it literally destroys the inerrancy of Scripture. It absolutely destroys the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, it's just too bad. Right. Right. Um, yeah, those who would argue that it's Hebrew poetry are making the argument that that it, the way it is written, it does present itself as though it's poetry. Um, but the point is that even if that is true, the Psalms are poetry. That doesn't mean that we don't take them literal. We don't take them at face value. That there isn't that they weren't written in the context of a historical setting in which they are written. Just because something is poetry doesn't mean it's not historical or that it's not conveying historical fact or accuracy. Um, so and so that's why I think that is a weak argument. Um, they also want to make you know and they want to make the argument that. Um, you know, the word yom for day, um, uh, you know, first of all, when there's no sun, you know, the sun is not created until, you know, later on It's in, in, in the creation account. Um, it's like day four, I think. Um, you know, how do you, have a, how do you have a day without the sun? 
Um, again, I don't think... Right, I don't... One, I don't think God needs a son to know, you know, when 24 hours is up, right? God doesn't need a clock, and he doesn't need a son. Um, but also... Also, I think that when God conveyed this information to Moses and Moses wrote the book of Genesis, um, when the Hebrews read and there was morning and evening on the first day, Yom, in their mind, they would have understood what a day is. Um, And the question is, you know, the Hebrew language is developed enough that God could have easily communicated to them that, oh, I did this over an expanse of many days or many years or whatever the case may be. But he uses the word that throughout the Hebrew Bible is understood to be one 24-hour day, right? But here's what I think are the the stronger um, counter-arguments to that, is that, um, number one, the New Testament writers, including Jesus, believed in a historical Adam, mm-hmm. right? And so that's, that's huge. The New Testament writers, including Jesus. For example, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 6, when arguing that marriage is supposed to be between one man and one woman, Jesus references Adam. Right? He references Adam. Um, oh, and I was just there and lost it. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 6. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now he's, ho- he's quoting from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. He is referencing the historical Adam and Eve when making the argument. So um, if they tried to discount the historical fact of Adam, then how do they support the theory that Jesus is the second Adam? Right, right. So how can you say that if Adam is not a historical person, but yet you say that Christ is the second Adam as a believer, now you're saying that that doesn't, that's not true either. Sure, yeah, that's a great, that's a great um, uh, counter argument as well, because you could even take that and look at what we just looked at, Romans chapter 5, you know, that sin came through one man. Well, if Adam is not a historical person, then who is that one man, right? Through through whom... Through whom did sin uh, come? Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to try to explain their view. I'm just saying that you may come across that, and the problems with it are just multiple. That's, that's another one. The other one is that, you know, how do you explain Paul's understanding? And there's another, when I say the New Testament writer, Paul understands sin came through one man. He actually says that. Sin came through one man, Adam. He's referring uh, to Adam. Uh, In the genealogy of Luke, chapter 3, Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus back to one man, Adam. It all starts there, and he traces it all the way down from Adam. 
So you've got, you know, the references even in Jude, Jude uh, 14, there is a reference to the one man, Adam, um, or Acts 17.26. Uh, Paul, again, in Acts 17.26, his, um, his speech at the Areopagus, what does he say there? Uh, and he made, talking about God, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, etc., etc., right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's important, I just want to point out, that the writers of the 1646 Confession of Faith clearly understood and believed there was a historical Adam. All of humanity comes from one man, one woman. Um, that is what we believe as a church. But there are people out there. I mean, our local Baptist University in Belton, the professors there don't believe in a historical Adam. Um, that, uh, that, that really somehow God works through theistic evolution. Man comes about. Sin enters into the world, and how it all happens doesn't really matter. What matters is where we are now. Um, but at the end of the day, you end up undermining, you know, and I, and I say, here, here's how I would put it. If there is no historical Adam, then Christianity simply collapses in on itself, right? It just collapses in on itself because it calls into question, as you mentioned, the inerrancy of Scripture. And it would call into question the trustworthiness of Scripture which would call into question the person and work of Christ, which would call into question the atonement and the resurrection and everything we believe. I mean, if the Bible is not trustworthy in its words, then where does that leave Christianity? Well, and the other side of the coin, too, it's a simple thing. It's like when Jesus talked about Adam, right. let us make right. man in our image. Right. Well, who's that? So he was there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He was there. He was there. He was involved in creation himself. Right. So he knew that Adam was a man from the dust of the ground. Right. Right. The other problem it creates is that, is that everything in the Bible is built on the opening three chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 lay the foundation for all of redemptive history. Um, because, you know, when I say one, two, and three, you know, just remember the timeline. Chapter one is the creation of everything. Day one, day two, day three. Chapter two is the creation of man and, and, and placing him in the garden, the creation of woman. And in chapter three is the fall, the temptation, the fall, the curse, the proto-evangelium, right? That I will send a redeemer who will, who will crush the head of the serpent, right? Everything after Genesis chapter three Everything is all built on that foundation. This is what happened, and this is what God is doing to fix it. So if Genesis 1 through 3 is not historical, it just calls into question everything after Genesis chapter 3. Um, so, uh, so I just it's important then that we understand that, uh, the, that Adam was a real person. Um, he was historical. And that is what the uh, confession says, and that's what we hold to. And then it goes on to say, whereby death came upon all his posterity, right? Uh, and I just read that in Romans 5, 12, that 
uh, you know, death came through one man. And so all die. All humans die because of Adam. Adam was our representative. He was, a theological term is he was our federal head, right? He was our federal representative. Um, whatever Adam did, we would reap either the consequences or the blessings of whatever his actions were. Had he chose not to give in to temptation, um, then you know his posterity would have lived forever. Adam would have lived forever. Um, but Adam did not obey, and so sin enters into the world, and he does die. Genesis 2.16 you know, you read these two verses back to back, and and, it, and it's you know it, it really drives it home. Genesis two sixteen, God says, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die." Then Genesis five five, thus all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years, and he died. Right, So Adam died. Sin enters into the world through him. And, you know, people can make the argument sometimes, well, that doesn't seem fair. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't, why do we suffer the consequences of what Adam did? Well, because God doesn't have to, you know, drag every human being through the garden to see what they're going to do because we all would have done the same thing, right? Um, no one can claim I would have done a better job or I wouldn't have given in. Um, Adam was in a perfect environment, a sinless environment, with one law to obey. And he failed in that one thing, right? And so what he does, we all um, are credited with his guilt. We are imputed, right? Um, John Murray wrote a great little book called The Imputation of Adam's Guilt. And uh, we are imputed, we are credited with Adam's guilt. Those who want to say that that's not fair, if you're going to hold to that, then you would have to say that it also is not fair that we are imputed or credited with Christ's righteousness, right? Because in Romans 5, Paul is making that argument that there's, there's a paradigm here, that what is true on one side is true on the other. Just as we are imputed with the guilt of Adam, because um, whoever it is Adam represents, they are imputed with his guilt. He then makes the argument on the other side of that, that whoever Christ represents, which is his people, they are imputed with his righteousness. There is imputation that happens on both sides, right? We simply reap the benefits of what Christ did. We reap the consequences of what Adam did. Hence, Christ 1 Corinthians 15 is the second Adam, right? Christ did what Adam failed to do. So how is the sin carried from one man to the next? Um, well, we are born, and it actually talks about that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Well, I'll answer your question for you. I think it's the very next one, who now are conceived in sin, right? That's the next phrase. Humans are born sinful, and become actual transgressors when we violate God's law. So we're born with a sin nature, um, uh, meaning um, we are born with a propensity to sin. How is it carried? 
Um, <laughs> ah, I see what you're saying. How? Right, right. Um, it is simply, it is simply passed on. It's a spiritual thing, and it's passed on from one spiritual being to the next. Um, uh, we are all uh, physical and, in a way, spiritual descendants of of Adam, um, and so it is a it is a spiritual uh, passing on. I don't think it's in our DNA. It's not in our blood, right? Um, Right, it's not tangible. Um, it is a. It is a, because Adam is a spiritual being. He is our spiritual and physical representative. It is simply passed on in a spiritual sense that everyone who's born from him. This is where the difference comes in with 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 Christ. Is that Christ is simply incarnated in the womb of Mary. She she carries him, but he is born of the Holy Spirit. Right, he's born of the Holy Spirit, um, so he, the spiritual part of Christ comes from the Father, comes from the Holy Spirit, um, whereas ours comes from Adam, so to speak. So when it speaks in the precious blood of Christ, what are we, what are we actually talking about? Because that's blood. It is blood. It's talking about that he absorbed the wrath of God the Father. Um, it's not so much. It's not so much that the blood itself. Uh, is what cleanses away our sins. It's the fact that Christ was sinless and he absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. And that meant the shedding of his blood. That meant that he had to be killed. His blood had to be spilt. It had to be poured out. Um, but it's not the physical blood that literally covers our sins so that God doesn't see it. God sees our sin. Um, but it means that he had to be killed. Um, his blood had to be spilt um, in order for our, tins, our sins to be atoned for. So what, are, what actually atones for our sins is simply his death. His death atones for our sins. So when God said, when God said surely in that day you will die, at that point, that's, that was a promise. To Adam, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah you will die. Yes. So that's that's what I'm just getting back to. I, I'm just yeah. Just questions. Yeah. <laughs> Good it's, questions. It's Good questions. When he said that, right? He said, "Surely you will die." Yeah. At the end of the day, that's like that's going to happen. Right. So that's so it's happened. Yeah. It, it did happen. Yeah, for the first God Adam and God, the second Adam. Yeah, God absolutely laid it out that way. Right. Right. Yeah, because of sin. It's an interesting way of thinking of it. Because of sin, both Adams had to die. Right? The first Adam died uh, as a consequence of sin, but so did the second Adam die as a consequence of sin. It's just not a consequence of his own sin. It's a consequence of our sins and of Adam's sin. Uh, but either way, both Adams die as a consequence of sin. So in the propitiation of when Christ does die yeah. and takes on the sin, the agony of the cross... Right. It's, it's a type of a transaction. It is. Okay. Just, okay. Yeah, it is a type of a transaction. That's right. Um, Christ pays our debt. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. Christ pays our debt on the cross. And so there is a transaction that takes place. There is a swapping of places that takes place. He takes our place on the cross uh, and absorbs the wrath of God. And then we receive his righteousness. He gets our sin and we receive his righteousness 
And so there's a trading of places, so to speak. This is kind of ironic that, um, that when we're in the red, it's dead. And, but Christ, it's, it's credited. Yeah. It's credited. Mm-hmm. Like that accounting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely right. You can get your credits and your debits mixed up for a righteous Yeah. <laughs> So the Bible is clear in numerous places like Psalm 51.5, Psalm 58.3, that uh, human beings are born into sin. Sin is not simply something that we become as we get older. We become transgressors of the law because to transgress means to actually transgress the law. And so an infant on day one is a, is, is a, a, a sinner in the sense of having a sin nature but is not a transgressor until they transgress the law. Now, that doesn't make a difference in terms of where their standing is with God. Uh, they are born sinful, right? They are born in a state of sin with a propensity to sin. And just as soon as they are physically old enough to start acting on that propensity, they do, right? They start acting on that propensity. That's right. They're not innocent. No. They are imputed with Adam's guilt. They are imputed with Adam's guilt and inherit his sin nature. And then it goes on to say, and are by nature the children of wrath. John 3.36 is always a good passage verse there, that those who believe on the Son of God have eternal life, and those who do not believe, it says the wrath of God remains on them. So it's interesting, it doesn't say the wrath of God will come upon those who don't believe, but that the wrath of God remains on those who don't believe. So it, and it was, it was there from the beginning. Because we think of wrath as something that we're going to endure. Right. We haven't yet endured it, but right. we're going to if we don't believe. Right. And, 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 and so the point is that God is angry with unbelievers and has been throughout their lives. They are, from the moment of birth, are under the anger and the wrath of God. Right? They are at enmity with God. That's correct. That's correct. Um, and so that's, you know, the next phrase says, and they are servants of sin, subjects of death, and other miseries in this world and forever. Right? The unregenerate only desire Sin, that's what it means to have a sin nature. They only desire sin. They may not realize it. They, they think, oh, no, I, I, I like, you know, doing good things for people. But there's a sinful motive behind it. Because if you're not doing it for God's glory, then you're doing it for some sinful, selfish motive, whether it's to feel good about yourself, whether it's for others to feel good about you, whether it's to have others indebted to you, Whatever the case may be, there is some selfish motive behind it, and so their every desire is for sin. And you see that in places like Genesis. Um, uh, 6.5, I think is what I meant. I've got to type on my notes. Yep, Genesis 6.5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually 
and that sounds like strong language, but remember, when we do things for ourselves and not for God's glory in the mind of God, that's evil. That is evil to do that. And so every intention of the human heart is only evil continually if it's not done for God's glory. And then we read in places like Romans 8, 7, and 8 that the unbelieving mind is at enmity against God. Unbelievers are at enmity against God. They hate the things of God. They want nothing to do with God. You look like you want to say something there, Bobby. Yeah, just, just another question. Sure. So, in my mind, um, sin nature, you're born, you're born into sin. You were sinful, basically, from your mother's womb. Yes, from you. The wicked go astray from their mother's womb. Sin. Yeah. Okay. So, it's kind of like, if you think about pride, because pride is, in my mind, pride is kind of like the mother of everything that goes on, mm-hmm. as far as why. But it's almost as if, as sin develops, because it has a starting point. I mean, you're you're sinful. You're just plain, you're you're deep sinful. Right? right. That is correct. However, there are people who have, to some degree, in a sense, a, a more of a propensity to be like more sinful. In a mm-hmm. sense, in other words, their pride, whatever, it's almost like pride gets inflated. Right. As sin as sin as it gets deeper and worse and more dark. Right. The pride, it's almost like pride begins to inflate itself mm-hmm. because of what's happened to us. And it's kind of the only thing that reverse that is is repentance, right? Becoming Christ. Yeah, that's it. You're you're stuck. You're stuck with that, it's right? Like, you are stuck unless God changes you, right? right? And, and in fact, that's the way that's the way the paragraph ends, right? The very last phrase says, um, "Well, let me read. Let me read. Let me start from where it says the servants." Uh, they are the servants of sin, subject of death, and other miseries in this world and forever, unless the Lord Jesus Christ set them free. Mm-hmm. Right? Unless the Lord Jesus Christ set them free. Notice, it's important to note that the statement here, uh, the confession does not say, um, unless they choose for Christ. <laughs> right? Because... The unregenerate who are born in sin and are totally depraved and do not have a free will cannot choose for Christ. And so they worded it rightly when they say, unless the Lord Jesus Christ set them free, right? Salvation is a unilateral sovereign work of God, right? In the end, when we, and we are commanded to, uh, you know, um, Great Commission, Matthew uh, 28, verses 19 and 20, right? We need to be sharing the gospel with people. But at the end of the day, all we're doing is leading a horse to water, right? In sharing the gospel with people, telling them about Jesus Christ, the only thing we're doing is leading a horse to water or we're pointing them in the direction of where we found water and food, but we cannot make them go in that direction, we can't make them drink. You can lead a horse to water. You can't make them drink, right? The only one who can do that is God. Only God can open their eyes to see Christ. Only God can break into their stone-cold, dead heart and make it alive. And that's really what happens in salvation. 
You know, the change that takes place in salvation when a person gets saved, it's not that they go from being a bad person to being a good person. That's not what happens, right? We're still bad people after we get saved, right? <laughs> right. Uh, we're still sinful creatures after we get saved. We are still sinners after we get saved, right? We still displease God after we get saved. So the change that happens in salvation is there's a change in the desire of our heart. That's what gets changed. God changes our hearts so that at one moment we have no desire to please God. We don't really care what God wants. We just live our lives. And then in the next moment, we do care. We greatly care. We want to please Him. We want to read His Word. We want to strive to be like Christ. And we do. And even though it's tumbling and falling and tripping constantly, there is this desire to get back up and to continue pursuing after Christ, pursuing after holiness, right? And that is the change that takes place in uh, the unbelieving heart. Um, yeah, probably. That's the other side of the coin that we started with. Able not to sin. Right. Now we're, we're able, actually able yeah. to not sin. We are able to not sin. We, yeah. Because those who walk by the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians, right, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Which means that when we sin, it's because at that moment we are choosing to not walk by the Spirit. We're choosing to walk in our own flesh. We're choosing to go our own way, and we sin every time we do it. But if we would consistently walk by the Spirit, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit when he's nudging us to do the right thing, and, and, and we all know what that's like, right? There's that, there's that voice in our head saying, you know you shouldn't say what you're thinking about saying, right? And then you say it anyways, and, and then you feel bad later, right? Wasn't it Paul that said, as if you crucified the Lord of glory all over Right. So I would, I would encourage everyone, because I know for myself, when I fall short and I sin, that comes to my mind that I've literally, I've just crucified the Lord of glory yeah, all yeah, over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I always say that, you know, when, when we sin, it's because at that moment, our desire to please ourselves is greater than our desire to please God. That's, that's what sin is. And, and that's what sin is. Yeah. At that moment, we chose for ourselves rather than God. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're a believer that grieves you when you do it and you realize later what you've done right well that's that's like when the apostle paul said oh wretched man am i when will i be released from this body right. of death yeah i mean think about that yeah here he is he's a super, basically quote unquote a super apostle right he's on the emmaus road he's blinded the lord himself speaks to him he, and then he becomes this incredible you know, teacher of the word. I mean, he's in jail. He goes through all of this stuff, and still, very much close to when uh, he died, he said things like that. Yeah. Oh, wretched man, am I? Wretched. Am I be released from this body of death? Yeah. And to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's right. To live as so Christ. Kind of like you, you think of all those things. Yeah. He's thinking. He's. I'm thinking, man. If he thought he was a wretched man, hey. well, where am I at? Hey. You know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like. Ah. So. so the, the, so 
mission and commission. Uh -huh. And I think then when we pray to, we pray about our trespasses against others. Even, but we don't always know what we've done. That's true. That's so true. Are those, but omissions you, you can know, but you don't always know, I would think. Right. But commission, what do you mean you, about sinning you against others? Right. And omission means that you might have left something out. Yeah. And sometimes that could be from not being aware because you're not sensitive to the spirit. Like maybe. A and, right. And then sometimes it's because you 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 don't do what you know. Well, I, I think I think both could be true. I think right. there are times when we can commit, you know, we can engage in sins of commission and not realize it because we don't know our Bibles very well. Yeah, that is true. And so we do things that we think are okay and of course we're sinning because like we don't know scripture that's why doctors are important right talking about that right recently that's so important yeah yeah so I, I think it's entirely possible that we engage in sins of commission and omission uh often and we don't even realize it we don't realize we've sinned yeah um and, and so, again, there's where the importance of studying your Bible, right? It's what I said on Sunday. I mean, the problem that the church in Corinth was in is that they simply didn't know their Bibles, right? And so it is important that we are reading God's Word daily and not just reading it, but studying it, learning it, right? Um, because if we really have a desire to please God, then we want to know, God, what do you expect of me? How do you want me to live? Um, and it's not a legalism thing. We're not trying to earn anything from God. We're not trying to earn salvation. We simply want to please Him in light of all that He has done for us. And, you know, and I love the way, you know, I don't know if they intended it this way. You know, I, I started by saying the two important lenses are, you know, this understanding rightly the sovereignty of God and understanding, you know, mankind. You know, here in the Confession, Article 3 is God's sovereignty, and Article 4 is the fall of man. You know, and then Article 5 is providence, right? You would think that providence would come right after sovereignty, but they put sovereignty and the fall of man next to each other, right? I'm wondering if they did that intentionally because they understood you got to get these things right, right? You got to get understanding God's sovereignty and understanding human nature and total depravity. Because yeah, I think, I think those blokes got it right. Um, because if you understand this, it should just increase your desire to want to please God. You know, because it wasn't like we were dying on our bed, you know, wheezing like a dying animal. And someone set the medicine of the gospel next to us and said, if, if you'll just take it. And, and you know, we were, we were a little smarter than the next person and we reached out and took it, Right. Um, or we were a little less prideful than the next person, and so we reached out. And we cannot pat ourselves on the back at all. We were all dead in our coffins, right? We were like in a mortuary, right? We were all in our coffins dead, and Christ comes in and for whatever reason opens certain coffins, not all of them. He opens a few and says, rise, rise and go and sin no more, right? And if you have faith in Christ today, 
you are one of those few that for some reason God just said, you know, like Lazarus, right? Lazarus, come forth. And he made us alive in Christ. Um, it's funny what you just, something you said made me think of some kind of funny way. It's like, broad is the road that leads to destruction. And narrow is the gate that opens the cemetery. Right. Okay. <laughs> narrow is the gate. I'm envisioning, you know, coffins opening, you know. And it is kind of like that. That is true. That is true. It is kind of like that. All right, well, let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer, and then we can always continue this conversation afterward. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we, um, we just stand amazed by your grace and your goodness and mercy, Lord God. All of us here were uh, um, totally depraved at, at some point, dead in our sins and our trespass, tres, trespasses. And for those of us in this room who have placed faith in Christ and a desire to live for you, we recognize that that is not because of anything that we've done. And we didn't earn it and we don't deserve it. But it's simply because of your amazing grace and goodness and mercy that you caused us to see and understand and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and love Christ. And it was only you who changed the desires of our heart from a heart that... Um, cared nothing about Christ and changed it into a heart that just desires to please Him in all that we do. And Lord, uh, we pray that this truth that we've covered today would just uh, deepen our uh, relationship with You, would increase our hunger to know You more and to study and pour over Your Word so that we might live lives that bring You great glory and honor and praise. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.